You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As he went along his way When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw Plowing through the ragged skies And up a cloudy draw Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. That was Johnny Cash, of course, for you at the top of the episode. That song came on my... Spotify playlist this morning on my way to work and I figured I would share it with you because it's very evocative and uh, who doesn't like Johnny Cash but in this episode we're going to talk maybe in some sense on a related note about church discipline local church discipline to be more precise and to be even still more precise We're going to talk about the statement from Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana, published yesterday on their website. It was sent to me, and I read it this morning when I woke up. I went through and I highlighted several points that I want to draw your attention to, not because I just really, really love talking about this, not because I want to obsess over it. Actually, nothing would please me more than moving on, but I feel a sense of responsibility being connected to this, maybe despite my uh, reticence, despite my own inclination to just walk away. And I feel like it needs to be updated, this story, this ongoing saga, with the information that is in this official statement. So let's just jump right in, and I will read the full thing for you, and then I just want to draw your attention to a few key sections here that are worth noting. And I also want to talk about what the Bible has to say about sin and correction, sin and rebuke, sin and confrontation. How do we do these things in a way that obeys our God, obeys our Lord and Savior, honors our Maker, honors one another, The scriptures are not silent on these things, but we need to jump in and see what they actually say in order for them to have an effect on us. But first of all, as I said, let's read through the statement itself from FBC leadership. This was taken directly from the website. Published July 25th, 2022 by FBC leadership. Effective July 24th, 2022, Fellowship Baptist Church of Sydney, Montana, has voted to remove Jordan Hall from membership in poor standing due to a failure to demonstrate repentance for sins that he had committed against his family, his church, and his God. Our petition to the Lord has been and continues to be that Jordan will humbly take responsibility for his actions, cease his attempts at undermining the integrity of the people he sinned against, and commit himself fully to whatever is necessary to rebuild trust among those that he has deceived and abused. 
Please join us in prayerful hope that Jordan will be humbled through this final act of discipline and will ultimately be restored to fellowship with the body of Christ. Now that's the first paragraph. That is not the full statement. If that had been the full statement, I think I would have been content to make it a footnote in a larger episode about something else, which I should very much like to talk about, believe you me. But that is by no means all there is to this official public statement. And it is the next section that concerns me and which I think needs to be addressed still further. Moving on, and I quote, Due to a steady barrage of harassment and accusations levied against the members of FBC Sydney, we thought it appropriate to briefly clear up some misconceptions that have circulated regarding the situation. The decisions that have been made by our leadership and the motivations behind those decisions. Number one, at no point prior to June 5th were any of the church leaders aware of Jordan's drug addiction. Hindsight is a luxury in this case, as we have heard from several individuals since then that claim to have suspected he had a problem with Xanax. Unfortunately, it seems that those warning signs are only now being shared and were either dismissed by the individuals at the time or kept silent for fear of stirring conflict. Number two, the incident referred to in the June 27th statement of disqualification was in reference to the situation that led us to the knowledge that Jordan had an addiction to Xanax. On the morning of June 5th, Jordan and his family arrived to the church to attend Sunday service. He had been on compulsory sabbatical for nearly three weeks at this point. We had seen him come in fatigued and disoriented before under the guise of a diagnosed vitamin deficiency. Folks would consistently and lovingly express concern to him and his wife, but this day seemed especially severe. After a lengthy interrogation, Jordan reluctantly admitted that it was Xanax that was causing his intoxication. He was sent home to rest, and further intervention proceeded later that evening by men in the church. The implication that the incident referred to was domestic abuse is incorrect. We believe that abuse did occur, but we're adjudicating the matter as an accusation against Jordan through church discipline and in conjunction with the appropriate authorities. Number three, Sydney police and DPHHS, CFSD, were informed by church leadership of accusations that we received of spousal abuse and abuse of a minor child within the whole family. Note, this information was shared with us by individuals within the whole family. No one outside the family was witness to the abuse, although we considered the testimonies to be credible. Jordan's wife explicitly stated that she did not want us to report it. Through investigation into the Montana statute regarding mandatory reporting for clergy and caregivers within the foster care system, also applicable to individuals in our leadership, we decided it was necessary for this information to be shared with authorities. In order to protect the victims of the alleged abuse from public scrutiny, we had intended for this information to not be made public. A referenced Facebook post on the public church page that had been made by Jordan's wife as a rebuke to the church was a result of the authorities having been informed without her consent. The post was removed 
to avoid a public discussion of the context behind the post, again, in attempt to insulate the family from public inquiry or stigma. Number four, at no point were any of our decisions regarding public comment or the manner in which we conducted church discipline upon Jordan informed by a desire to cover up sins or to preserve his public persona. Our main concern was the welfare of our church, the whole family, and Jordan's soul, while making our best attempt at handling the situation with integrity to the scriptures. Our desire to avoid gossip and backbiting led us to weigh carefully what we felt was necessary to share with the prying eyes of the public and when it would be appropriate to make public commentary. We are well aware that many will disagree with our assessment, but we are primarily concerned with our accountability to God and the local church. Again, we covet the prayers of those who are authentically concerned with the well-being of the whole family as well as the unity of our local body of believers. Please pray that God's purposes will be accomplished through us in this challenging time. Leadership of Fellowship Baptist Church, Sydney, Montana. So, briefly, because I want to spend the majority of our time together in this episode talking through what the scriptures have to say about church discipline and about rebuke and repentance, it is very important for us to not overlook pass over, ignore, sidestep, downplay what God's word says about conflict. We want to handle it in a way that pleases God, in a way that is loving and bold and effective and more to the point, obedient and faithful. But before we jump into those passages that pertain here, a couple of things to draw out. One, note here that the FBC leadership says, point blank, Jordan has failed to demonstrate repentance for sins that he committed against his family, his church, and his God. It doesn't mean that he will never repent. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. It doesn't mean that he will always fail to demonstrate repentance. But note the language here demonstrate repentance. We will come back to that, and it is relevant to what the scriptures have to say. Demonstrate repentance. Demonstrate repentance. That means you have to act repentant, and you have to behave in a repentant way. You have to relate to the people involved in a repentant way. You can't just say, sorry, that's not enough. Repentance is a turning away. It's a repudiation of your former way of relating, and it is turning towards obedience, not just saying, yeah, I did that. Probably shouldn't have, but whatever. Jordan has failed to demonstrate repentance for sins that he committed against his family, his church, and his God per Fellowship Baptist Church leadership. Also, too, notice the next sentence. Our petition to the Lord has been and continues to be that Jordan will humbly take responsibility for his actions, cease his attempt at undermining the integrity of the people he sinned against, commit himself fully to whatever is necessary to rebuild trust among those he has deceived and abused. These are correct. It is good to pray for this. 
Take responsibility for what you did. Stop trying to destroy the reputation and the credibility of the people you have sinned against. You are sinning against them more in real time by trying to argue that they're lying, they're imagining things, they're making it up, to suggest that everybody who you sinned against is crazy, is gaslighting, to suggest that they're lying if they're telling the truth is not just the sin against God because you're in that situation. If you are not telling the truth yourself, lying, but it's also a sin against that person because you are slandering them. You are defaming them. You are damaging their reputation. And again, again, that is something that I'm going to return to again and again in this episode because it's very important to my main point for recording this that we understand how to relate to those who bring an accusation of misdeed, of error, of sin against especially a leader in the church. That should be taken very, very seriously, both by those who bring an accusation and by those who have the accusation brought to them. We should take it very, very seriously and not be flippant about it. It's very appropriate to say part of repentance here is to stop undermining the integrity of the people you sinned against, Jordan. Also, too, commit himself fully to whatever is necessary to rebuild trust among those he has deceived and abused. So here we have an admission that Jordan Hall has deceived and abused. They don't say who all he's deceived. They don't say who all he's abused. But here is an admission from FBC Sydney. He has deceived, that is lied to, misled, manipulated, and he owes apologies, genuine apologies for that. Beyond that, though, for this to say, for this official statement from yesterday afternoon slash evening to say he needs to rebuild trust among those he abused is to say that he has abused people. Maybe that's his wife and his children. Maybe that's more than just his wife and his children. What was the concern that I and others brought forward? That abuse was happening, not specifically of his family, but that he was abusing other people. If he was abusing other people publicly through his platform at Protestia, Pulpit and Pen, the Polemics Report, and others, if he was abusing people publicly, is it a huge surprise if, in fact, it turns out that he was abusing his family privately, that he was abusing his church privately? Something to consider here. They don't get into who all has been abused, who all has been deceived, but this establishes that they believe he has not only deceived, but also abused people. Now, again, as I said, this first paragraph, I read this and I don't find anything that I disagree with at all. I think this is well-worded. I find this to be holistic and balanced and appropriate. Now, that said, the next paragraph claims that members of FBC Sydney have had a steady barrage of harassment and accusations levied against them. I don't know who FBC Sydney leadership would say 
has harassed or levied a barrage of accusations against their members. But if in any measure they intend to include me in that, I record this episode to lay that to rest because that is not fair and that is not valid. I'm not saying they would lump me in, but I have a feeling that they would. And for reasons which I will make clear as we go, that is not correct. And that is actually, if it is their position, a kind of evidence that Jordan really has left his mark on this church and has in some ways taught them how to relate to concerns outside themselves from others about their way of relating. And that is something I am not pointing out to be hurtful. I am pointing it out to say, you might want to get that looked at. If he leaves, but you've become like him, it really in the end won't be enough that he's left because the attitude is what's at fault here, what's at issue here, the mindset, the way of relating. But they say here, we want to clear up some misconceptions that have circulated. And some of what they affirm as far as a timeline, as far as the sequence of events, as far as rationale is helpful in doing away with, clearing away some speculation that others, at least in my experience, in my case, and the case of those I've been talking with, has been, I think, framed clearly as speculative. There is a difference, and it needs to be recognized. There's a distinction, and it needs to be recognized between speculation, on the one hand, and assumption or accusation. A speculation is not the same thing as an accusation. But they say in point number one, at no point prior to June 5th, were any of the church leaders aware of Jordan's drug addiction. Note here the use of the word addiction. They were not aware of his drug addiction, they say. Were they aware of his dependence? Were they aware of his use of a prescription drug here? And was that concerning insofar as we're dealing with a psychotropic drug? We're dealing with somebody who has anxiety, depression, some of both, both and. That's an important question to ask. And it it isn't to say if they were aware that he was taking Xanax, that is damning. Now, my cousin Tim over at the Bible Bashed podcast. I talked with actually at great length today. I talked to them for three plus hours or three hours, almost three hours, something like that, around three hours today. And also messaged back and forth with him at some length yesterday over this situation. And he is a biblical counselor, I believe certified, licensed biblical counselor, went to master's university in California, also attended Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a pastor. He takes the view that use of these drugs at all may be grounds for church discipline at all. And I don't agree with that. I would say addiction and abuse of these drugs, sure, church discipline, yes, if there's no repentance. But 
that's neither here nor there. My point is, to say that they were unaware of his drug addiction is not quite the same thing as saying that they were aware or unaware of his use of Xanax. And for that matter, too, with erratic behavior that many observed in sermons, in conversation, not just in the past year, but for years, several years. And we're talking public statements from several fairly high-profile people who have been in his corner theologically, socially, politically, erratic behavior, odd ways of relating to the truth and to others that he disagreed with, disproportionate responses to even minor disagreements, which were the cause of my family and I discontinuing our attendance of this church back in 2014, within a few short months of moving to Sydney. For those who are were aware that he was on Xanax and also that he was relating to others in unusual ways, in unhealthy ways. I think the Xanax, again, I'll say it again because I have been saying it. I have a slightly different perspective, uh, (laughs) to put it mildly, than my cousin Tim here. The Xanax question is beside the point. Not because Xanax is no big deal, but because you didn't have to know he was on Xanax to see his way of relating to people, his way of conducting himself. It was that way of relating, that way of behaving, which was disqualifying. The Xanax addiction is not the thing that was disqualifying. His way of relating to people and to the truth was what was disqualifying a long time ago. Nevertheless, they say at the end of point one, in reference to some who, several who, have since this became public, said that they suspected he had a problem with Xanax. And I quote, It seems that those warning signs are only now being shared and were either dismissed by the individuals at the time or kept silent for fear of stirring conflict. That's something I just, I really don't know what to do with, ladies and gentlemen. In the previous paragraph, you characterize requests for information, criticism of your church and of Jordan especially, as a steady barrage of harassment and accusations levied against the members of FBC Sydney. But then here, you're saying that the warning signs are only now being shared. The leadership at FBC Sydney should have been able to see the warning signs. If they couldn't see the warning signs and couldn't recognize them, they weren't leaders, they were followers. They were yes-men. They were put in those positions strategically after more than one clean-out of previous leadership rosters by Jordan. They were put in those positions because the expectation was that they would not provide the kind of accountability that they just did. And to be fair to them, I think a compliment ought to be paid to men who finally did what was needed here. And I say finally because this is overdue. You can say, oh, well, we did the right thing. Yes, so did the police eventually with regards to the Uvalde, Texas school shooter. Eventually, they did the right thing. We're not upset because you eventually did the right thing. We're upset because you waited outside for quite some time. 
and also that there were warning signs with regards to the school shooter for years, and you didn't take them seriously. You didn't engage on that. And not just the police, in the case of the warning signs. Family, friends, acquaintances. But here, you see it in the last four words in point number one. Fear of stirring conflict. They kept silent for fear of stirring conflict. Do you know why that is, FBC leadership? It's because of the way biblical definitions have been twisted and warped in a very self-serving way. You had these members believing and deathly afraid that they would be sinning, they would be gossiping if they criticized at all, said a negative word at all about Jordan. They were deathly afraid that they would be rebuked themselves or church disciplined themselves or worse. By the nature of the concerns about Jordan's behavior and his way of relating, admitted to here that he was abusive, a lot of people were afraid for their physical safety and the physical safety of their families. So yeah, they were, fr- they were afraid. They kept silent because they were afraid of stirring conflict. Whose responsibility was it to properly define biblical conflict resolution, what God's word says, what God says about confronting sin and error in his church? Whose responsibility was it, FBC leadership? Was it only Jordan's responsibility to define those things, to teach those things faithfully, impartially, or was it also yours for quite some time prior to this point? Moving on, point number two, just a couple of highlights in this one that clear up what situation led them to the knowledge that Jordan was addicted to Xanax. They talk about his showing up intoxicated, they're pulling him aside, interrogating him at length, and him reluctantly admitting, he reluctantly admitted that it was Xanax that was causing his intoxication, they say, and they refute the claim or speculation or the implication, as they call it, that the incident which made them aware of the Xanax addiction was domestic abuse. But they say, we believe that abuse did occur. We were just adjudicating the matter as an accusation against Jordan through church discipline and in conjunction with the appropriate authorities. So, June 5th is when they say that Jordan and his family arrived at the church. June 5th is when they pulled him aside and interrogated him. June 5th seems to be when the further intervention by men in the church took place at the home. Further intervention proceeded later that evening by men in the church. Maybe that was intervention because there was a domestic violence incident between when Jordan and his family showed up at the church in the morning and when you came there in the evening. Why do I say that? Well, look at the police report. Look at when it was reported. I believe it was June 23rd, if memory serves. Look at when the incident is said to have taken place, June 5th. And this seems like a very credible scenario, and I'm not assuming, but I am speculating here as I'm trying to piece together the timeline, that Jordan and his family came to church on a Sunday morning. Jordan seemed intoxicated. They pulled him aside. They had a lengthy interrogation of him. They sent him home to get some rest. And it's very plausible that after he went home with his family, 
is when a violent incident occurred between Jordan and his wife, between Jordan and his children. And then one of the children, as the next point makes clear, one of the children contacted the leadership of FBC Sydney. And boy, howdy, does it frustrate me on a very deep level that it took one of Jordan's own children asking for intervention here of a more stern, robust, manly nature for this to finally come to a close, at least as far as Hull's relationship with FBC Sydney is concerned and correspondingly his relationship with Protestia. So also Jordan's wife explicitly stated she did not want us to report it. I can't tell you more that I know from reliable, very reliable sources with firsthand knowledge, but this does not take me by surprise. I'll put it that way. Jordan's wife did not want them to report the incident to the police. They, meanwhile, looked into the Montana statutes. So they looked at the letter of Montana state law. And I guess a question to my mind is, if they had not found a Montana state law requiring them to take this to CPS or the Sydney Police Department, what then would they have done? This is just an odd line here to my mind. Mandatory reporting, we realized we had to, according to state law, and so we did. Earlier, you say the appropriate authorities and church discipline is how you were handling it. The appropriate authorities, according to state law, but years ahead of this, years before this, the appropriate authorities were ecclesiastical authorities, per what the scriptures say about taking disputes between believers to unbelievers, taking disputes between believers to the godless, to those outside the church, to judge. Is there not any among you to judge these matters, who has wisdom to judge these matters? Don't you know we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? Moving on, they decided it was necessary for this information to be shared with authorities. By that, they mean law enforcement, CPS. And then they say we were trying to protect the victims of the alleged abuse from public scrutiny. And I can, of everything in these four points of clarification, of everything here that I can empathize with, that makes me want to believe that they did the right thing by only disclosing the Xanax addiction, this is the most compelling. You were trying to protect the victims of the alleged abuse from public scrutiny. I too would be inclined towards that. Interestingly enough, they made public that he had been removed from the pastorate. Also, it became known that they had filed police reports about embezzlement, about a domestic violence incident on June 5th. And so Mandy Hall commented on the church's Facebook page to say, you're not helping us at all. It's a lie. Your public statement says you are helping our family. You're not helping us at all. And what she really meant, I think, I suspect, was it was not helpful for you to report this to the authorities. I told you not to. I told you I didn't want you to do that. So they say they removed her post to avoid a public discussion of the context behind the post. Well, yes, we gathered that. That doesn't mean that was the right call. I'm not saying it was the wrong call. But it doesn't mean it was the right call. You're just stating what is self-evident and obvious here. 
to be fair, at least on that. Point number four, they say, at no point were any of our decisions regarding public comment or the manner in which we conducted church discipline upon Jordan informed by a desire to cover up sins or to preserve his public persona. (sighs) The Lord knows. Only God knows. I'm not going to argue that point. Only God knows. They say that their main concern was the welfare of their church, the whole family, and Jordan's soul while making their best attempt at handling the situation with integrity to the scriptures. This might be petty. Maybe I'm being nitpicky. I'm not going to dwell on it. Your main concern should have been, first, obedience to God's word, and then an expectation that follows that obedience to God's word would promote best the welfare of the local church, the health and safety of the whole family, the preservation of Jordan's soul. It doesn't mean that the last thing in the list was the least concern, but you qualify your handling of the situation with regards to the scriptures in a way that belies a certain doubt in your minds that you were obedient here. And that makes me sad, frankly. I am sad about that. It grieves me, genuinely. I don't spike the football here, as many have said, It grieves me to read this. Now they say next, our desire to avoid gossip and backbiting led us to weigh carefully what we felt was necessary to share with the prying eyes of the public. But here too, this goes back to the very last sentence in point number one. Many kept their concerns to themselves for fear of stirring conflict. Why? Because you defined gossip and backbiting in such a way, in so broad a term, but only selectively with those who would bring a charge against Jordan, not those Jordan would bring a charge against, that you didn't know how to get off that track. Let's be honest. It's understandable given the dynamics here, but you didn't know how to get off that track. And it looked, you have to admit, it looked, and it may still have been, a cover-up concerned with his reputation and more to the point, your reputations, the reputation of your church and you as the leadership of FBC Sydney and many others besides, but we'll just start there because you're the ones speaking to what your motives were. The last here, they say, we covet the prayers of those who are authentically concerned with the well-being of the whole family, as well as the unity of our local body of believers. This word authentically is a bit of a jab, Which again, just drives home the point to my mind that you guys have become like Jordan more than you probably care to realize just yet. You qualify concerned with the well-being of the whole family with the word authentically, and you're implying that some of those who say they're praying for the whole family and the church are being disingenuous. Again, I don't know who all you put in that category. But the insinuation is less than totally helpful in my view. You were taught by example for many years to throw elbows unnecessarily, and you need to unlearn that. Moving on into what God's word says about conflict. First of all, the Bible, God's word, says that we should keep sin and the confrontation of sin as small as possible if it's a private matter between brothers. That is true. 
that is correct, that is appropriate, confrontation and resolution of private sin of one Christian brother against another should be handled as privately as possible according to what Christ Jesus says in Matthew 18, starting from verse 15. And I quote, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, what is this saying? One, first step. Your brother sins against you. Go privately to your brother. That's important. And to be very, very clear, because this is very important. I take that principle so seriously that I took a lot of flack at a church. I was a deacon at I was on the governing board for for two years. I took a lot of flack because I insisted on a closer obedience and attention to Matthew 18 with regards to private resolution of conflicts between believers. Without going into it too much, there was one particular family which had made it a habit for years, maybe even generations, to not do this, to not go privately to a brother or a sister who had sinned against them, but to wait until the most public moment possible at church, and then to stand up and to rail against, yes, even the pastor, the deacons, the elders, in front of everybody, at length, in abusive terms, rudely, in a way that was designed strategically to humiliate and destroy the targets of their public harassment. And my comment at the time, especially given the things they were complaining about, which were just baseless, we're not talking sin, we're not talking abuse, we're talking they were annoyed and irritated because things weren't being done their way, and so they decided that they were going to let everyone know about it and berate the objects of their wrath in front of everyone. It's very important that if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother privately. And if he won't listen to you, if he's unresponsive and unreasonable and unrepentant, then you go get two or three witnesses. And the reason for that is tied up in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is to say, you take along two or three witnesses who are also brothers and you have as good as taken along Christ himself to mediate and moderate this dispute between you. If your brother is still unrepentant, you take your brother before the elders of the church, the leadership of the church, and they should be able to bring him to heal to where he says, you know what, I'm sorry. But if he still won't listen to the elders of the church, you take him before the entire church, 
And then you treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is to say you treat him like he's not even a Christian, essentially. This is not using the language of Christian and non-Christian. That came later. But that is what's being talked about here. Those who follow Christ and those who don't. When it says church here, that's talking about the assembly, the gathering together of God's people, the ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesiastical, from which we get the English word church. But this is, I think, reasonably interpreted. Matthew 18, especially especially given the order of operations, the escalating confrontation, more and more people are brought into it as your brother is more and more unresponsive to calls for repentance. It's reasonable to interpret this as the local church, as FBC Sydney and many others are in the case of Jordan Hall and FBC Sydney. However, specific examples of rebuke and correction are found throughout the scripture, which even just the inclusion of itself in the biblical text, in the biblical narrative, proves that rebuke and correction of even lay people is not confined to only the knowledge and awareness and business of the local church. If that were not the case, the inclusion of these stories in the biblical text would be very curious. So those who object that any attempt to make the larger body of Christ aware of private sins on the part of a Christian brother or sister, in this case, Jordan Hall, have to reckon with that. They have to make sense of that somehow if they want to be biblical. And I haven't seen that done yet. It really needs to be done, but then that's why I'm recording this episode right now. So there you go. Now, that was Matthew 18. Matthew 18 has been bandied about by this church for years. They think that Matthew 18 is a verb. I'm going to Matthew 18 you, which is newfangled and novel, and I don't know where they got that from. Matthew 18 is not like that. By the way, also, there's more to Matthew 18 than just going to your brother privately if he sins against you, taking him before the whole church. There is more to Matthew 18 than that. But even if Matthew 18 was only confrontation and resolution of one brother's sin against another brother, there is more that the Bible says about confronting sin and rebuking sinners and those in error than just Matthew 18. For instance, the biblical standard principle and command for handling sin and confrontation of church leaders is different. Confrontation and resolution of sin by an elder requires the testimony of two or three witnesses. You can't even bring a charge against an elder without the testimony of two or three witnesses, according to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5. Starting in verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, why do I mention the last couple of verses here? Quite simply because they pertain to the potential of abusing a substance, maybe not Xanax in the context but fill in the blank with some other mind-altering substance, and the principle remains the same. He says, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's okay for you to use medicines if you are not feeling well and it's getting in the way of you being fruitful and productive. It's not okay for you to become a slave, to become addicted, to become dependent, to be controlled by wine or strong drink or some prescription medication even. But he says here, every charge has to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, remember Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. So for two or three witnesses to say, we have a charge against this elder. This elder has sinned. He has erred. Two or three witnesses who are Christians is the equivalent of Christ himself bringing that charge. And it needs to be taken seriously, very seriously. Now, this says in verse 20, unless somebody wants to wiggle out of it and claim, oh, no, 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 it's it's talking about those who admit a charge against an elder. That's They're the ones who persist in sin. It couldn't possibly mean the elder himself persisting in sin. Perish the thought. Except that the preceding verse says, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is to say, that Paul is not ruling out the possibility you can have an elder sinning in error. Rebuke them in the presence of all on the testimony of two or three witnesses. By the way, too, the reasons for this two or three rule are not explicitly stated here, but this is related to the requirement for overseers that they be above reproach. First Timothy 3.2, quote, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., Titus 1.7, very similar instructions to Titus and to Timothy here. Quote, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, why, riddle me this, why does Paul have to state these requirements? Because there are scenarios in which you could get somebody appointed as an overseer who is not above reproach, who is a polygamist, potentially, or unfaithful, a womanizer, who is not sober-minded, who is not self-controlled, who is not respectable, who is not hospitable, who is not able to teach, who is arrogant, who is quick-tempered, who is a drunkard, who is violent, who is greedy for gain, and you don't want that. And God says, no. Nothing in here about Xanax, by the way. Nothing. You didn't need to know that Jordan was addicted to Xanax to know that he was disqualified according to what Paul writes to both Timothy and Titus in the New Testament. Your argument is invalid. Your defense and justification of yourself is still more error, and you should repent of it. But again, above reproach does not mean incapable of sin or error. It means blameless in the sense of their character being very high. We talk on this podcast a lot about Romans 13. 
and I make explicitly clear, Romans 13 should never be misconstrued or twisted to mean that the person in authority, the governing authority, is infallible or perfect in the civil sphere, and so also the ideal of overseers being above reproach should not be misconstrued as them being infallible or perfect in the ecclesiastical sphere. They are not infallible when they're above reproach. Otherwise, it would be senseless to say that you need two or three witnesses to admit a charge against an elder. Impossible. A charge against an elder? Perish the thought. No. Above reproach means that their character is such, their way of relating is such, that you don't go around asking everybody who knew them best, do you think they're capable of doing this thing they're accused of? And they all say, yeah, absolutely. Anybody who knows him would say that was the way he treated people for a long time. That's the way he acted for a long time. Everyone else could see it apparently, just not the leadership at FBC Sydney and everybody else on a national stage who helped to platform Jordan also too. They could see it as they all say now publicly. They could see it for years, but they only felt the responsibility to Jordan to tell him privately. They didn't feel any responsibility to their audiences to warn them and they didn't feel any responsibility to the leadership at FBC Sydney to investigate. Hey, what's going on? How's he doing? Is he treating you guys all right? Do you need me to talk with him? In fact, when Paul Washer was approached, or at least his Heart Cry Ministries was, they said, we don't get into local church matters. No, we just talk in the platosphere, apparently. All right. Thanks for nothing. First Timothy 5 says when there is a rebuke by the way it's to be leveled in the sight of all some want this word all to be narrowed to mean not all actually when it says all they suddenly become like the day age theorists with regards to genesis well you know just what is a day really i mean yeah it says morning and evening but it's you know like it could be metaphorical. You know, when it says all, I said, what is what is all anyways? I mean, literally not everybody in the whole world, surely. This says all. But I grant that some want the word all here to be narrowed, to not mean all for reasons which I think could be sincere. It could be that they are pure-hearted and they have just not studied the relevant passages diligently enough and they've been misled by some who want this to be narrowly defined to preserve their reputations. They say they're trying to preserve the unity of their local church body, but maybe, maybe, maybe not. God knows. I'm convinced that even though some may want this word all to be narrowed for pure reasons that they just haven't studied diligently enough the passage, others want this to be narrowed to mean not all for reasons that are self-serving and self-protective. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not put more on you than you are able to bear. But that is to say, if you give in to the temptation, it's not God's fault. It's not that he made you so weak. It's that you wanted to give in to the temptation. Finally, and then I got to run, to rely on only doctrinal litmus tests 
is unbiblical, and it makes us exceedingly vulnerable to Pharisaic foibles. God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Whatever we say, whatever we do, we can say, oh, well, I, what I really meant was this, and what I really meant was that. God knows. But for the rest of us, <laughs> for you and me and all the rest of us mortals here, including clergy, by the way, more on that in a future episode, Jesus tells us to judge trees by the fruit they bear. Is the fruit good? Is the fruit evil? And oh, by the way, that fruit is not doctrinal statements and verbal professions of faith. Many in the Reformed tradition, many who have Jordan Hole's back still right now, who defend their not having caught this sooner, are pleading innocence on the basis that his doctrine was sound. His doctrinal statements were perfect. What he said he believed, you couldn't argue with. An equal number of those very same characters pleading innocence need to beg forgiveness to the Almighty for having disobeyed what Christ told us explicitly to do. That is, to judge trees by the fruits they bear. Luke 3, 8 through 10. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. By their fruits. And the neighboring passage talks about not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, on the last day is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of his Father in heaven are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is going to say to many on the last day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their protest is going to be, look at everything we did in your name. His response is going to be, depart from me. I never knew you. So also here, I mean, again, the first paragraph of the official statement from FBC Sydney is great. And I mean that. If I were your editor and you sent this to me, I would have given you some pro tips to keep that first paragraph exactly as it is. It's great. You should pray for what you're praying for there. You should plead intercession and petition the Lord for what you're petitioning him for. But notice what you say here. You want Jordan to humbly take responsibility for his actions, cease his attempts at undermining the integrity of the people he sinned against. What are you doing, FBC Sydney? There's a lot of self-justification here. A lot. Where in this is there an admission, we messed up, we made a mistake, we are sorry? Where in this Are you ceasing your attempts at undermining the integrity of the people you've sinned against? Namely, 
the people you're sinning against in this statement. People like myself very easily get lumped in. And all manner of evil is said about us because we were trying to figure out what is actually going on here. And here's the thing, just a quick word on the local church thing you're trying to hide behind, that fig leaf. It ain't cutting it. Your option to keep Jordan Hall and FBC Sydney a private matter ended when you embraced Protestia and Pulpit and Pen and the Polemics Report as a ministry of your church. When you embraced what he was doing at a national level, trying to wield influence that was outsized. You can't just say, ah, you have to have been personally sinned against by the man in order to weigh in on this. Or you have to be a member of his local church. Where is that written? There's a great deal that has been written that is in your Bible, that is in my Bible, which you did not adhere to for a long time with regards to Jordan Hall. And then there's other stuff that you've smuggled in by which you demonstrate that you are the Pharisees. Woe to you. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you! scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come to this generation. Amen. Amen. Those are hard words from a good God who desires repentance, who desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Repent. Don't be hypocrites. You can't have two standards of weights and measures here. You are not allowed. God hates partiality. He hates hypocrisy. He hates unequal weights and measures. You didn't need to know that Jordan was addicted to Xanax. You knew by your own testimony, you knew, and I know, from the testimony of good godly men who were your predecessors in leadership at that church, and they were chased off one by one, and I wrote about it at On The Rock's blog back in 2017 and 2020, and I just had this long conversation with my cousin today, long conversation, in which he said, oh, well, but Garrett, you can't fault great men who helped to platform Jordan for not having noticed your podcast and your blog, and you're just a drop in the bucket. You didn't show up in their Twitter feed. And I think to myself, that's rich. I can't even access my Twitter. I've been locked out. So which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, the cart or the horse? That we were dismissed because we criticized the man who then the claim is made about that nobody warned them. You're like silly children who put your fingers in your ears and you go, la, 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 I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Eh, what, what are you saying? I can't. Nah, nah. If I don't hear you, then I can't be held accountable for knowing. So I'm just going to tune you out. And then I'm going to say, oh, I had no idea. All the while, part of the reason why we were marginalized by the very audience that you men have soaked up the adoration of for all these years we were written off by that audience, in part with your help, because you marginalized, and you even still marginalize everyone who brings a valid complaint here. On what basis? Because he was getting stuff done. He might have been a bad dude, but he was your bad dude, until it became a liability. 
in which case it was important to come out and act like you were the ones warning about him all along. No, no. See, this is of a piece with the response to COVID. This is of a piece with the whole reason why I talk about everything. That's what is so hard to shake for me. I see move after move, tactic after tactic, and if all I cared about was being famous, boy, howdy, you think Jordan was bad if I'd have joined him, if I had lacked scruples, I would have. Boy, we could have tore stuff up. We could have made a mess of it. We really could have. But the trouble is, those who, on principle, stepped back and didn't do the popular thing, didn't do the clickbaity thing, didn't do the sensationalist, yellow journalism, muckraking thing, but instead tried ardently to take their lumps faithfully, obediently, in a way that honored God, those addicted to their own fame, the sound of their own name being honored on other men's lips, were all too happy to ignore. Woe to you. That's what I have to say. You should really get that looked at on a related note. You can pray for my father, my dad, Byron Doyle Mullet, who went to a dermatologist yesterday. I will say this. If you have some kind of a growth on your face, you either need to look in the mirror or other people who can see you, you've got to listen to them. If they say, hey, you should get that looked at, could be nothing. But what if it's something? God is good in all of this because God is good, and because God is just, because God is faithful, we should with confidence approach the throne and we should plead God's grace and we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance and we should beware of wolves in sheep's clothing and we should recognize trees by the fruit they bear. Woe to you if all you consider is someone's doctrinal statement and the profession of faith, but how they treat people, how they act, how they behave, how they conduct themselves is irrelevant because they're on your team. It's disobedient. It's ungodly. God will not be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. I got to run though. I'm supposed to help with music. I've got practice tonight in an hour. And in the meantime, I need to get myself cleaned up, get ready. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel. Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel. A bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky. For he saw the riders coming hard. And he heard their mournful cry You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.